Welcome to Query, where we provide simple answers to complex tech questions. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, even though this is our first episode, by my co-host, and really, I think everyone's friend, Serenity Caldwell. Hello, Stephen Hackett. We're, we have a podcast together. We do. This is a podcast where we answer questions that you submit. Please submit questions, because yes. otherwise we have to invent questions, which is hilarious. <laughs> but yeah. So all the questions this week were submitted by Relay FM members. They got a preview episode a couple of weeks ago, and we'll tell you in a little bit how you can submit your own questions. But the idea here is you have questions, and Serena and I both have a long background in tech and in writing, and so we're going to kind of put all that together in a new show, and it's going to be 30 minutes, it's going to be weekly, and I think, for one, it's going to be a lot of fun going to be awesome. We're going to answer all your questions. And if we don't know your question, we're going to find out together. That's right. So we're going to start with Tyler. Tyler has won the award for the the first query question. The first query, query. Query, query. Congratulations, Tyler. So Tyler asks, if you have a Wi-Fi only iPad connected to an iPhone hotspot, does the iPad treat the iPhone cellular connection? Like, Does it treat it as cellular or does it treat it as Wi-Fi? And I think behind Ooh. this question is the, is the conversation of iOS acts a certain way when you're just on LTE versus if it's on wireless, right? There, there are certain things that work and certain things that don't. And if your iPad is tethered to your phone, the iPad appears to be on Wi-Fi. I don't know about you, Ren, but I actually didn't know the answer to this. And so I got to go K-based diving, which is my favorite thing. <laughs> your secret your secret hobby. Some people like to go spelunking. It's not <laughs> even a secret. Stephen Hackett likes to go into the knowledge base on Apple.com. I knew some some of this stuff, but um, but why don't you tell us what the what the K-base has to say? Because I'm I'm very curious. So what uh, what Apple says uh, at the bottom, there's this page about tethering. We'll put it in the show notes. They have this little text at the bottom. It says certain apps and features that require a Wi-Fi connection might not work when using a personal hotspot. And they the example they use, I think, is what's what is always on every everyone's mind that you may not be able to make an iCloud backup or upload photos to iCloud photo library uh, while using this. And which makes a ton of sense to me, right? Those are the two things that my iOS devices do that generate the most data like across the network, right? Creating an iCloud backup. And then if I take a bunch of pictures, syncing those back and forth with iCloud photo library. So it seems like iOS to a degree at least is smart enough to know even though I'm on a Wi-Fi connection that Wi-Fi connection is really a hotspot so don't treat it uh, like it's you know like my home internet right treat it as if it's coming over the wire from from LTE yeah please don't accidentally let me make a 60 gigabyte iCloud photo library backup right because <laughs> I definitely you know there there was a time in the land of betas when this did not happen uh, when the hotspot was just like, hey, yeah, I'll download whatever you ask. And so the I believe that it was either the very first or the second developer beta that had iCloud Photo Library, which was iOS 8, 9? Um, 9, I think. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere yeah, in there. And uh, I definitely spent quite a lot of my data <laughs> trying to upload my photo library, or in this case, download my photo library uh, from the cloud. And yeah, I I learned my lesson and it appears so did Apple on that regard. Yeah. But Stephen, this actually brings up an interesting question, which I'm actually going to test right now. Um, with If you are on an iPad and you're tethering, you can't necessarily make a backup to iCloud or download uh, stuff from iCloud Photo Library. Or rather, I should say you can download individual pictures from iCloud Photo Library, but you can't like download your entire library. Uh, 
But what about apps? Because this is something that we've run into more and more, right, with this whole discussion of apps that are gigantic in their updates and have 120 megs, 130 megs per app update. And normally your iPhone won't let you download those because they're over 100 megabytes and they don't want you to, again, kill your data plan downloading cellular updates. But what about when you tether? That's, uh, that is the question that I do not know the answer to. Well, we are we're, we're going to find out. Find it out. Yeah. Uh, it it is nice that Apple has looked into this for the reason you said that the you know you could really burn through your data cap. But what's interesting in iOS 11, at least in the betas as they exist today, there's an option to allow iCloud Photo Library to work over cellular. And so I think what I'm going to be doing moving forward, I'm going to leave that off and just let it rely on Wi-Fi. But maybe you know, there are times where I take a picture or shoot some video and I. I would feel better if it weren't just on my phone. So a couple of weeks ago, my wife and uh, like all of her family and our family, we went camping together for like four days. And as you might imagine, I took tons of photos on my iPhone 7 Plus and lots of video. And we're, we're hiking, right? Like we're, I'm at a waterfall. And I have this thought of like, if I drop this phone in this bottom of this waterfall, you're doomed. <laughs> all the pictures from the last four days would be gone. And I had pretty good LTE coverage. So it would have been nice to like, well, can I just turn that on for a little while? What I ended up doing was uploading some of those to Dropbox over AT&T just, so, just for that peace of mind. But it looks like Apple's going to give us more options there. But I would definitely be mindful of that toggle, especially people aren't into this if you're traveling internationally or, you know, you're at the end of your data cap, you could, you could get in a situation where you're spending a lot of money unknowingly. So Apple puts these guardrails up. They seems like they've uh, started to apply those to tethering as well. Yeah. And that's an interesting question, Stephen, whether or not that that toggle, because we really haven't done in-depth testing, whether that toggle means that you're going to be able to download high quality photos, which again, that was something that was kind of previously reserved for Wi-Fi only access, where you could download like optimized versions of the photos uh, if you were on a cellular connection. Uh, or thumbnail photos always exist on your device, whether or not you're you're connected to the internet, so you can still look at something. Uh, but as anybody who's ever tried to download a photo from iCloud knows and sees that little exclamation mark in the bottom right corner, mm-hmm. um, that is my real question: is like, is that what this is going to solve, or is it actually like you just su- suggested? Like, will it actually let us upload certain things in batch? Because I definitely like, I, as you just gave a great example of, like that's a really important uh, feature for somebody who is hiking and has LTE or otherwise cellular coverage who wants to make sure that their photos don't disappear. Here's a crazy thought, Apple. Let us have some kind of file offload via, you know, the USB camera controller. God forbid. (laughs) No, no USB in the land of iOS. (laughs) No mice. I'll give you no mice. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, I am, I am attempting to download a 400 megabyte app right now. Awesome. Let's see if over, over LTE, uh, kind of another angle in the end of this conversation is, is the LTE iPad worth, uh, I don't know about you, but for me, at least the last several iPads I've purchased, including my new 10.5 inch, which is right here on my desk, I have opted for the LTE. Now it is $130 more, uh, out of the gate. And that's, that, that has always been the case. And you've got to have a cell plan, but like at least here in the States, if you have the Apple SIM, you can choose between T-Mobile and AT&T and a couple others. And it's really easy to set up. I have very little data on that plan, but say like for the month of June, I was at WBC, we were on this camping trip, I was traveling a lot. And so I went to my AT&T account and said, hey, you know, put 10 gigs or whatever on there. And so I didn't have to worry about it. And now that I'm home and it's July, I've scaled that back to whatever the base, like the lowest, cheapest option is. 
Uh, and I like that flexibility. The tethering is great, and Apple's made it pretty easy to do. But there's something nice about just having an iPad and not having to tether, not having to wear your iPhone battery down because that can be battery intensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was curious to know what you did about that. Yeah, um, I am in 100% agreement. Uh, for a, w- a long time, I believe that the Wi-Fi only iPad was the best deal and the best way to go. Uh, but when I started using the iPad Pro for the first time, I think in four or five iPad generations, I got a, a cellular nine point, uh, or excuse me, twelve point nine inch iPad Pro. Um, and especially if you're using your iPad as your primary machine, like there, there is a reason why people have been clamoring so vociferously for an LTE signal on a MacBook Pro, and that's because having internet wherever you are and not having not having to worry about does my iPhone have enough battery to personal hotspot or is this Wi-Fi hotspot reliable or am I accidentally going to send all of my data to Russia? Like <laughs> you, 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 to be able to have that option even if you don't use it, I think is really important, and it was. It was very noticeable in that when I bought the 9.7 inch iPad Pro to kind of do comparison testing, I didn't get that one in cellular. I only got that one in Wi-Fi uh, and I immediately missed the LTE service. It was something where I was just like, I think even on day number two, I was out and about and I, I'm like, I don't have enough battery on my iPhone to, to tether properly. Crud, I really wish that I could pull up this website right now. Um, and it's just, I don't know, to me, it, it is worth the cost. It depends on your, your usage vantage, right? Like if you are just using an iPad mostly around the house or in Wi-Fi accessible areas, um, and it's not a, a, something that you think that you're regularly going to need, then I, I have no problem with going for a Wi-Fi versus an LTE. But if you think that you'll use it even 20% of the time, it's totally worth it. And one of the really important things to note, Stephen, about the US, especially, um, you mentioned the Apple SIM, what uh, the sort of unsung hero of the iPad plans and the Apple SIM is T-Mobile in the United States, uh, because T-Mobile offers a, I think it's $10 for five gigabytes over 150 days, and it's just a one-time purchase. So you can pay that one-time purchase, and then you have just like a decent amount of data. And then in addition to that, if you get an iPad plan on T-Mobile, you get 200 megs a month for life. So you will always have like a little bit of data a month if you're one of those people who only needs it in emergencies. I've I've loved that. Like T-Mobile depends on whether or not T-Mobile is actually reliable in your area. But as somebody who like works in a pretty AT&T heavy area, it's nice to have that as kind of an option. And you can always swap it out with a different SIM if that's not your your jam. Yeah. I um, actually just bought an Apple SIM. I had iPad it was an iPad Air 2 that has been in my family is now going to a sibling and the the um, the Apple SIM, I kept getting like errors on starting up that would say that wasn't a SIM that would show up. So I just replaced it. Five bucks at the Apple store. It's got to be the cheapest thing in the Apple store. <laughs> uh, I walked in. I was like, I need an Apple SIM. And they kind of looked at me as if I was from a different planet. And they remembered <laughs> they sell it and they had to go dig like the one out of the drawer in the back. It also, if you are like us and sort of turn over your devices on a pretty regular basis, you know, you're not going to get the $130 back on the back end, but it may help resell as well, that, that resell value. So it's something to think about there as well. But all in all, I think, I think we have Tyler covered. I feel good. Yeah, Tyler, I, I hope you feel good. <laughs> Hopefully we've given you some things to think about, Tyler. 
So if you want to be awesome like Tyler and submit questions to us, you can do so on Twitter. All you have to do is use the hashtag AskQuery and we will see it. We are using fancy internet technology to search that hashtag. It puts in a spreadsheet. It's all very exciting. Uh, of course, you can follow the show. We want you to follow the show. It is at, at Query Show on Twitter. So hashtag AskQuery and at Query Show and you'll be set. The iOS 11 public beta is out, and a whole bunch of people are now, uh, and this is Serendi's verb in the document, inflicting (laughs) their phones and tablets with Apple's newest features. We've had a bunch of people ask us our opinion of iOS 11 and kind of our top features that people should play with. So, Oh, man. So there's a, a lot of features in iOS 11. If you are brave enough to install the public beta on your phone, and there, there is a very real reason why I said inflicting, um, and that is because a beta is a beta, and you want to be very, you know, don't install this on a device uh, if you can't afford for this device, for that device to be buggy, and if you can't afford for your battery to go away. Uh, but but say say you're like you either have a secondary iPhone or an iPod Touch or something, and you're just like, yeah, I want to I want to try all the iOS 11 features. What features should I try? Well, um, if you have an iPad and you're installing iOS 11 on an iPad, uh, I kind of feel like the new multitasking features and drag and drop are just no brainers. Like that, I feel like a lot of people are installing the public beta specifically to try those features. Uh, because iPad multitasking really, really has gotten monumentally better, especially if you have an iPad with more or uh, more than two gigs of RAM. So it's basically any any of the uh, 12.9 inch iPad Pros, the 10.5 inch iPad Pro. Sadly, the 9.7 is excluded from this, but even that does a, a fair amount of multitasking features. Uh, but they are great. They are really they really do improve uh, how fast you work with the iPad. Um, it, in, it's just like the drag and drop features are crazy, even just for dragging and dropping apps into split view. Like, I think one of my favorite demos on that is, uh, going back to the home screen, tapping and holding on one app to get ready to drag it into, uh, into split screen mode, tapping on your original app while holding the other one, uh, so that the original app blows up to full screen and then dropping that original app pick and then it immediately drops into a split or a slide over or split view, depending on where you drop it on the screen. Like, it's just a fun, it's a fun demo. It's a really useful way of working in uh, multitasking environments on the iPad. And I'm glad that Apple kind of took the time to do it and do it right because I I really, really like it. One thing I'm enjoying is the improved Notes app. So Notes got a lot of love a couple of years ago and just continues to get better. And there are two things in iOS 11 that I really like. The first, if you have a pencil and you just tap the pencil on the lock screen, you get a a note. And that note is sandboxed from everything else, so it doesn't have access to your other notes. The device is still locked, so if you hit the sleep-wake button, it goes back to the lock screen. But it's a great way just to tap it and and jot something down or type something in really quickly. uh, That that has been on other devices like the Samsung Galaxy Note, but bringing it to the iPad makes a ton of sense. And they've added document scanning to notes. I actually used this today. I had to fill out some paperwork to send to an advertiser on Relay. And I just, you know, filled it out at my desk. They wanted it emailed. And I could have gotten my flatbed scanner out and plugged it into my iMac, but that's a lot of work. And so I just put it on my desk and I held my iPad over it. And I didn't have to line it up or, you know, like do the hover, right? Like you're hovering your device over the paper, trying to get it, you know, right square. It 
saw the paper, it figured out where the edges were, and I think they're using ARKit for a lot of that detection, and then it straightened it out on its own. And it looks like it. I did it on the flatbed scanner. It did an incredible job. And there's lots of great scanning apps on the iOS app store, and Notes is very simple, right? It doesn't do... Uh, a lot of the stuff that those third-party apps can do. But for something just quick, where I, just, I need a PDF of this, I need to get out the door, uh, it really was awesome. So uh, the Notes uh, app continues to get better and better. Even uh, even in a year where the iPad got so much other attention, Notes still managed to get in the door. I think what excites me slightly more than Notes, um, only because it's some it's a feature that I use all the time, um, and now it's much easier to do so is Control Center got a lot of new widgets. And while I'm not completely 100% sold on the design right now, uh, I love all of the functionality. And in specific, uh, one widget that I, I'm just kind of like, how did they not do this before? This is amazing, is they have taken the Apple TV remote app and they have made it an overlay in Control Center. So you just press and hold on on an Apple TV remote uh, icon basically, and you get the full interface to to work with your Apple TV in lieu of trying to find the little you know multi touch remote that gets lost and disappears and no one knows where it is. I mean, we have we literally it's been gone in our house for two months. We've only been using <laughs> our phones, so maybe that's why I'm biased towards this because I use it. I use the remote app every single day to control my Apple TV, and now to just have it quickly available in Control Center and not have to like switch. Apps, you know, if I'm airplaying something, I can instantly have controls um, rather than like having to switch between YouTube and the remote app or YouTube and, and Sonos or something like that. Um, I can just flick up and then press and hold, and then I have access to all the controls. So I think that's really cool. Uh, I have super props to whatever part of the control center engineering team, maybe it was Springboard, I'm not really sure who handled that, because seriously, like, tiny little feature i'm sure that like two percent of the population wanted uh but i am that two percent i'm really happy about this it's uh i think those engineers just lost their apple tv remotes too they're like i don't know where it is i'll just put it in the controls (laughs) it might as well just be your phone you use your phone for everything why make you pick up a different thing Uh, another feature i i haven't gotten to use yet because i just have the public beta on my ipad i haven't put it on my phone yet but i'm really excited about do not disturb while driving so this is using a bunch of techniques to figure for your phone to figure out if it's in a car. So it's using some sensors. I believe if you connect to a Bluetooth, like a head unit, like I do, mm-hmm. it detects that. Accelerometer. Accelerometer, all this stuff. It puts the, the pieces together that you're driving and it will put your phone in do not disturb mode if you opt in. Uh, I think the first time you get in the car and this happens, it, it gives you a notification of like, hey, do you want to turn this on? It will leave the phone in do not disturb while you're in the car. And I know I'm as guilty as anyone of being tempted to, <laughs> you know, my phone is, is buzzing when it want to look at it. And it's a terrible idea and you shouldn't do it. I shouldn't do it. None of us should do it. And Apple is going to uh, help us all with that temptation. And I am going to be turning it on. Uh, there's some stuff it's doing with iMessage where if someone really needs to get a hold of you, they still can, right? Like that's always the thing. Like, well, if there's an emergency, but they're, they're building some of that stuff in to kind of take care of that. But I think on the whole, this is going to make uh, everyone safer if people opt into it. So I would encourage listeners when this when this comes out to uh, give this a shot. And, and I think that we will all be better for it and safer. It's the, it's the temptation, right? Everything feels urgent. So all of a sudden, you know, you get a text message from somebody and it's just like, 
yes, this could this could probably wait five minutes. This is not life or death. Are you a surgeon? Are you a rocket scientist? Is something going to explode if you don't answer your phone? No? Maybe leave it alone. Um, so I appreciate the option to take away the temptation. And it's worth noting that Apple is not, you know, imposing this on anybody. You do not have to enable this if you really want to take your life into your own hands and, and text. Um, and there is a an option to disable it if you're a passenger, because obviously, you know, if you're a passenger in a car, you probably want <laughs> right, to use your phone yeah. without Apple nagging you. It is worth noting that it's, you know, it, it is an optional feature, but it's a feature that we all probably should turn on. It's kind of important to, you know, life. And until we've got automated cars probably a good thing. My last pick for sort of my top three is um, actually an Apple Music feature. Uh, surprise, surprise. I'm, I've been kind of writing about Apple Music the last couple years and did a lot of troubleshooting with it with when it first came out. And one of the biggest requests I heard from people was just like, Apple had basic playlist sharing enabled. Like I could send you a playlist, Stephen. But if I changed that playlist or even reordered it in any way, uh, it would break the sharing link so you couldn't get any of my updates and I would have to resend you and basically remake the playlist because there was a bug with, you know, you, could, you couldn't just resend the same link. It would just send you that old cached uh, version. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so it was just it was just not great um, if you wanted to share music. And given that that's like a big aspect of Spotify and other uh, social music, you know, that's part of the fun of subscription music is is seeing what your friends are listening to. And Apple, as we know, has had some uh, missteps when it comes to social and music ping, uh, connect. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but in iOS 11, I feel like they've actually kind of gotten it right. They've opened it up so you can share your user profile and your recent playlists that you've made uh, with your friends and family, with just yourself or with the public at large. Uh, you can share an active playlist. So... If I, you know, make a playlist and then I decide to completely re -up, redo it the next week, you will get that update just like Apple has their live playlists, right, that update every Sunday. Um, and playlists are searchable. So you can now type into the Apple Music search bar or you will be able to in iOS 11. You know, I want to listen to driving music or summer music, for example, and you can actually see the people who have made their playlists public, you can see their summer playlists and you could actually listen to like some random person's on the internet summer playlist, or you can listen to Stephen Hackett's summer playlist and you can see what Stephen Hackett was listening to recently, uh, which is, which is pretty cool. Obviously there's some privacy concerns, you know, some people don't want to see the, you know, tell their friends that they've been listening to Polka, uh, but there is, you know, there are, there are <laughs> privacy controls so you can, you don't have to share your music with your friends, but I'm really excited to. I've already discovered some like really awesome music from just like the little widget that's like, this is what your friends are listening yeah, to. Yeah, I think I think a lot of music services have tried similar things and and I I'm hopeful that Apple Music can kind of make that stick. You know, there um people have uh like uh was it sc scrobbling? Is that the, was that what that what people called it is like uh Oh yeah. all sorts of stuff, right? To keep up with that and to share it and the best way I think to find music is to find people who are listening to it, right? They can, those recommendations are really important. And it's interesting that Apple's doing it that way as opposed to like Discover Weekly on Spotify, which is highly mm -hmm. praised by people who like Spotify. Apple's kind of approaching it from a different angle, but I think people are really going to like it. And I think that it's going to be, I think it's going to be successful. I, I have hope that the third time is the charm when it comes to Apple music and uh, social networks. Rest in peace, Ping. Uh, so I will finish this up and I'm going to pick something that is not 
exciting for most people, although most people want it. It's not a headlining feature. It's not sexy in any way. But search works in mail.app yes. on iOS. Yes. So I, I use, I've got three email accounts. They're all either Google or Google Apps accounts. And I keep the Gmail app on my phone because search and mail is so broken. And if I need to find something, I'll just go to Gmail and find it and deal with mm-hmm. it there. <laughs> At least on the iPad, like in the, these early beta days, search is really good in mail. And I don't know. It took so long. The iPhone's only been been out a decade, and it's always been bad. But it seems like they've finally cracked it. It's you know, it's something that, especially if you if you sort of get into the the, the Gmail sense of mind where you just archive everything, you're not putting things into folders. Search is the only way to to retrieve that stuff, right? Search is the only way in. And now, finally, it seems like it works, and it, it seems to work well, and it's fast. At least on the you know, 35 inch iPad is a crazy powerful iPad, but it's fast on this, and I'm sure it'll be fast on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so big thumbs up to the mail team for getting that right this time. Seriously, I was so I, – I think I typed in something uh, during WWDC after I'd installed the beta, um, assuming, again, in the back of my mind, this is not going to work and then seeing every email from this person for the last six years pop up, I was just like, what is going on? This is so exciting. Um, so, yes, it's pretty great. So we are going to move into what we're calling the speed run. Do-do-do. So speed run, we have three questions a week and we're going to blast through them. So you want to get us started? Yeah. Um, so here's a question for you, Stephen Hackett. Richard asks, what is the best way to schedule a backup if I have an external drive and I want to schedule it to another external drive and both are connected to my Mac? So something like Time Machine won't work for this. You need to go third party. There are two options. One is called Super Duper. The other is called Carbon Copy Cloner. They're very similar tools. Uh, I tend to prefer Carbon Copy Cloner, but both are excellent. Like you cannot go wrong either way. And both of them, you can assign task and assign a schedule. So you can set it to back up every time both volumes are mounted. So I use this to back up my Drobo. I have a Drobo connected to a Mac mini and I have a big external drive that I, I clone the Drobo to like once a month. And I have carbon copy cloner just looking for that destination drive all the time. And when it shows up on the system, it launches and does the backup, but you can set it on a calendar. You can set a schedule up for it every night, every other night, whatever you want to do. So there'll be links to both in the show notes. Uh, neither of them are free, but both are definitely worth your money. And like I said, I picked one years ago, but Super Duper and Carbon Copy Cloner are both awesome. Go check them out. For serious. So this one is for you. Doug asks, I want to combine a photo and video on an iPad Pro such that only a small region would be animated. Any apps for that? There are, in fact, um, what Doug is talking about is called a cinemagraph, um, which is not quite your your live photo Harry Potter look, but very similar. Um, actually, the the de- the delay, um, the time lapse live photo feature that they were talking about in iOS 11, that's basically a cinemagraph where one one part is moving, but everything else is is stationary. Um, the absolute hands down best tool is Cinemagraph Pro from Flixel. Flixel's been doing this 
since I think iOS four. Oh, wow. um, yeah, they've they have been doing Cinemagraph since the very, very beginning. Um, and they have a great program, as I said, on iOS. And it also hooks into their Mac app. Um, it is a subscription tool, however, and it's kind of like it is overkill if all you want to do is maybe animate one photo. Uh, but if you're looking to do this in a professional setting, or even if you just really want to play around with it, they do have a free to a free trial. They're great. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, there are also two newer apps that I haven't played around a ton with. So I this is a try at your own risk. They are both free. Um, one is Mask Art. I've heard a couple of good things about. And then also Pico, P-I-C-O-O Camera. Um, I've also heard uh, does decent cinemagraphs. Um, and this actually, this question prompted me to get a roundup scheduled for best cinemagraph apps on iMore. So look for that too. I had trouble visualizing what Doug meant. And then on the Cinemagraph Pro homepage, there's an example. So if you're having trouble visualizing that, click that link and it'll kind of show you what you're talking about. It looks really cool. Yeah. Illuminate your mind. All right. Last question, Stephen. Daniel asks, I am an Android developer thinking about dipping my toes into iOS. What is the easiest way for me to do this without breaking the bank? So this is not the best way to do it, but is the cheapest way to do it. <laughs> and that is the iPod Touch. Yes, they still sell it. It You can get one as cheap as $199, uh, which is a lot less. I looked at refurbished iPads. So Apple has a bunch of those, and you can go check those out, those out too. The screen is small, which is a bummer. It's it's the 4-inch screen size. But it's on a budget, 200 bucks to get, get in the door. I think if you want to at least try to start playing with it, this is a pretty good way to go. But I think if you're going to develop for iOS sort of for realsies, you should get a phone and an iPad to kind of understand the bigger class sizes. But just to get started, I don't think 200 bucks is is a is for an iPod Touch is that crazy of a decision. Agreed. And if you want to take kind of like one step up higher, uh, you can also consider getting a refurb iPhone SE or even an older iPhone SE um, as a it's I think the bottom level iPhone that still supports all of the all of iOS 11's features. Um, so it's saved for like 3D touch. Uh, so if you need the cellular or if you need to experiment kind of some of the super high-end stuff, um, that's that's another route to go in. Uh, this is also assuming that you have a Mac. Uh, you do need a Mac to develop for uh, for iOS. There is no Android version of Xcode uh, or rather uh, no Windows version of Xcode or Linux version of Xcode. Um, and what would you, Stephen, what would be your best Mac recommendation for someone who's like looking to, just looking to develop for iOS, maybe nothing too crazy, but like wants to get their foot in the door? Yeah. I mean, I think if you want a notebook, I think the default answer is still probably the MacBook Air. It's not the fastest thing. The screen's not the nicest thing, but it's cheap. And for, for what it is, it's pretty fast. Uh, I think if you want a desktop though, you could spend, you know, maybe a little bit more money and get a 21 inch iMac and kind of be set. You know, the Mac mini is even older than the MacBook Air. It's kind of hard for me to, to recommend the Mac mini at this point, but yeah. um, just because Xcode does require a certain level of performance. You know, if you're just looking to get your first Mac, maybe the Mac mini is still a viable choice, but I think kind of MacBook Air is like the basement right now. If you want to run Xcode and, and have it be reasonably responsive. Agreed. And you know what? A couple hundred dollars more for a 4K 21-inch iMac is not a bad deal. Well, that brings us to the end of episode one. Woohoo! We made it, Stephen! <laughs> we did. Like we said earlier, to submit questions, please tweet with the hashtag AskQuery, and we will see it. In the meantime, you can find Serenity on Twitter at Saturn, 
and find her writing, of course, at imore.com. I'm ISMH on Twitter and write 512pixels.net. Until our next set of questions, Serenity, say goodbye. Goodbye. Adios.